God, as we've uh, sung this morning, we give you praise, Jesus, for saving us, for being our living hope. Jesus, you have done something that no one else could do, and that is you have made a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be redeemed. Lord, through Christ alone are we adopted into your family. God, thank you that that does save us from our sin, that that gives us a new eternal position. But Lord, the gospel also impacts how we live today in the present. And Lord, that directly impacts us living on mission and taking this wonderful living hope to the ends of the earth. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, over the next couple of moments, Lord, to be able to understand this text in a way that encourages and challenges Uh, what we think about our role is within the mission of the church. And so, Lord, help us to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is the most effective way in reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? If I asked you that question, I wonder what you would say to that. What is the best way in order for the world to believe in Jesus Christ? I'm sure we have all kinds of different answers in this room. Maybe some of us are thinking, You know what we need? We need a a phenomenal preacher with a booming voice that has sharp illustrations that can connect with unbelievers. We we need like the next Billy Graham, just bigger. Maybe others of us are thinking, no, 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 we don't need that. What we need is to actually meet the world's physical needs in order to demonstrate that the gospel works. So let's eliminate world hunger. Let's pull all of our resources together and eliminate that so the world will believe in Jesus. Now, maybe others of us are thinking, no, no, those are fine, but what we actually need is to show that Christianity is cool. We need the world to believe that Christianity is relevant, that it's hip, that it's uh, influential. So what we need are some big-time celebrities to become Christian and for them to use their, their public platform in order to show that Christianity is cool. I'm sure you have other answers to that, but it's an interesting question. Because it's a question that reveals both your understanding of global missions and also your understanding of the local church within global missions. See, I wonder what Jesus would say to that question. I think that's really where we need to go as we think about how to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why I love John 17 so much. Jesus isn't directly answering that question, but there are things in Jesus' prayer that I think we can pull out that would impact how we are to best reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we would be surprised. So last week we looked at the beginning of John 17 and we noted that uh, John 17 is the longest and most personal recorded prayer of Jesus in the entire Bible. That Jesus is just hours away from dying on the cross. And so if you could just kind of put yourself in the shoes of Jesus for a moment. Let's say that, that you have just a matter of hours before you die, before you leave the earth, and you're surrounded by your family, maybe your friends, the closest people in your life, and you're given the opportunity to pray. One last time, this is the last thing that those people around you are going to hear you say. I think that we can safely conclude whatever you pray about is probably the most important things in your life right? Like those are the highest priorities. And the same is true in John chapter 17 as Jesus has this wonderful and yet personal prayer. Last week, we also noted that one of the key themes in Jesus' prayer, one of his highest priorities is actually missions. 
you look at John 17 and we noted verse 18, Jesus says to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, his followers, into the world. Missions is kind of all over this prayer because it was such an important moment in Jesus's ministry. Jesus here is, is in a sense, passing the baton of this mission onto his disciples and onto his followers that eventually that we receive even today with the Great Commission. So last week, we looked at these four observations about how Jesus's prayer impacts our understanding of missions, and we talked about how every Christian is sent on mission, that some of us are called to go and to be kind of cross-cultural missionaries, and others of us are called to send, to pray, to give financially. We talked about how God's glory is the fuel for missions. We looked at how success in this mission is actually being faithful to God's assignment that he has for you here today in the present. And then we looked at prayer and how it's the indispensable work in missions. Well, today, I want to further explore Jesus's prayer and how it impacts our understanding of missions by asking the question, what does a group of people look like who are faithfully living out verse 18? that if we are really sent into the world with this mission, then what can we discern from Jesus's prayer that kind of characterizes a group of believers that are doing this well? Okay, and there's a couple things that I'm gonna point out in this prayer. Here's the first thing that I think that we as a church, we as a group of believers need to have if we are to live out this mission faithfully, and that is a wise and urgent posture towards reaching the world. Let me show you where Jesus is praying about this. Just to back up a little bit, the first five verses in John 17, Jesus is praying for himself. He then kind of pivots a little bit, and in verses 6 through 19, he begins to pray for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, he starts to pray for followers of his that will believe because of the disciples' ministry. But in this prayer, when you Look at verses 6 through 13. Jesus is praying and he's talking to the Father about how he has protected his disciples, he's guarded his disciples, but he knows that something is going to happen that's going to impact the disciples' relationship with the world. And that event is that Jesus is going to physically leave his disciples, he's going to die, and he's going to ascend to the Father. And so Jesus actually spends a lot of verses here talking about what our relationship with the world should actually look like in verses 13 through 19. If you look at verse 14, for example, Jesus actually says that the world will hate his own followers because we believe in Jesus and we hold fast to the word of God. The word of God stands directly opposed to the values and the principles of this world. And so there is an antagonistic relationship that followers of Jesus have with the world. That shouldn't surprise us when we experience that on a day-in, day-out basis. But the question that we should ask ourselves is, well, what is our relationship with the world? What should that even look like then? If we're called to live on mission into the world, but we know they're going to hate us, we know that some are going to reject the the gospel, then how should we interact with them? Furthermore, the the world is is filled with evil and, and sin and And we we want to kind of maybe resist or avoid some of those things to to make sure that we're faithful to the gospel. So what should our relationship with it be? Well, we have a couple of options here that if you look at church history, there are a couple of popular positions and different stances that the church 
has had. Here's uh, the first option, is that we can receive the world. Okay, this position states that, hey, our mission is to, is to reach the world, therefore we need to immerse ourselves fully into the world. We need to accept and even experience aspects of the world with very little filter of how the world is impacting my spiritual condition. Okay, God created the world, God loves the world, the, the world is largely a good place, and we can experience all kinds of things and receive it. Okay, that's one position. The second popular position is the opposite, and that is to reject the world. This position states that there's so much evil in the world, there's so much sin, that we need to remove ourselves as much from, as much from the world as possible. We almost need to kind of isolate ourselves, almost create a, a Christian bubble where we just interact with Christian friends, do Christian activities, do business with other uh, Christian organizations. That basically, our separatism will somehow uh, lead the world to Jesus. That's kind of the second popular position. So you can either receive or reject the world. But looking at this prayer, and specifically looking at verse 15, I think Jesus would suggest a third option, a third way. Look at verse 15 with me. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, notice here in this verse, Jesus is asking the Father not to take them out of the world, so don't fully reject the world. And yet at the same time, Jesus also asked the Father to keep them from the evil one, so don't completely receive everything from the world. So Jesus is offering this kind of third way of embracing the tension of living in a dark, fallen, broken world and yet maintaining faithfulness to the mission that Jesus has given us. And so the question is, well, how do you do that? Like, what does that even look like? Well, I think the key here is looking at what is sandwiching verse 18. Okay, we've seen the importance of verse 18 of Jesus sending us into mission. Look at the verse before it and after it, because it helps us understand our relationship with the world. Jesus, in these two verses, is asking the Father to use the truth, to use the word of God in order to sanctify his followers. Okay, so, so as we're living in this world, the more that we immerse ourselves in the word of God, the more set apart we are going to be from the world. And so your isolation from the world is not what will sanctify you or set you apart from the world. What will set you apart, what will sanctify you in the world is obeying the word of God in the midst of living in a broken and dark world. That the word of God is the light in the midst of a dark world, but the word of God is also powerful enough to give us everything we need for life and godliness and to embrace this tension of there's sin around us, there's darkness around us, there's brokenness around us, but we have a mission to, to pursue and to partake in, and the word of God is that light and is that power to help us to remain godly in the midst of it. All right, so this third option um, is, is basically to be in the world, but not to be of the world, right? Like we've, we've heard that phrase before. It's a very popular phrase. That's kind of what Jesus, I think, is getting at here. Or you could call this third option to have a posture towards the world where you're looking to redeem the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, this third option would take options one and two and take the good from it, but it comes at a different conclusion. This position says that because of God's common grace, because every human is created in the image of God, there are good, wholesome, beautiful aspects about this world that we can experience and enjoy. But this position also says that there is, there is evil and there is sin in the world that we are to resist and that we are to avoid. But it doesn't stop there. This position also looks at the brokenness around us in this world and asks the question, what does the gospel say about the brokenness around me? What does the gospel demand of me as we look at maybe broken marriages around us or broken homes, as we look at at selfishness around us, as we look at the empty pursuit of worldliness, as we look at materialism or racism? What does the gospel say about those issues and those brokenness around the world? What does the gospel even say and demand of us when we consider that there are unreached people groups throughout the world, there are groups of people who have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. Even if they wanted to hear about Jesus, they could not. See, this position kind of pushes us and says, instead of running away from the brokenness in this world, yes, you're going to have a filter of of not partaking in sin, but there is this gospel lens by which you view your role in the world where you are looking for ways that the gospel wants to redeem and restore the brokenness around you. And I talk about that there needs to be wisdom here because it's hard to do. That there are scenarios, and it's almost case by case, where, yeah, you probably want to avoid that area because there's so much sin or there's so much evil. or certain activities or environments where you do need to kind of withdraw and resist. But more often than not, I think maybe for us as a church, we need to consider more of the urgency side, more of the, hey, we have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, and the Bible says that he is greater who lives inside of us than he who is in the world. And so what the gospel actually creates is a boldness and a fearlessness and an urgency to go into the world, whether locally or globally, and look for ways where the gospel can actually redeem that brokenness. And so I think this position for us to think about how are we to interact with the world is to have this wise but urgent posture. And I even think that this this catchy phrase, the be in this world but not of this world, it sometimes gives us the wrong impression about what our mission actually is. Like if you think about it for a moment, it almost gives off the impression that we're in this world, but what we're really focused about is, is not to be of this world. Like, it almost feels like the emphasis is to avoid worldliness. And don't get me wrong, Jesus definitely wants us to avoid being of the world. He says that twice in this prayer, verse 14 and 16. But notice kind of the way that this prayer flows. For Jesus, the not of the world is not the destination, but it's the starting place. In this prayer, the not of this world is not where things are moving toward, It's where things are moving from. And so the be in this world but not of this world, I wonder if we could almost redeem that phrase or revise it and say, be not of this world but sent into the world. See, the the starting place is to be not of the world, but where things are moving toward the emphasis 
is on being sent and living on mission, not that our mission is to disassociate ourselves from the world. I think that's the posture. As you look at the flow of where Jesus is taking his followers in this prayer, avoid godly, or pursue godliness, avoid worldliness, but make sure that the emphasis is being sent into the world and living that out. So a lot of implications with that type of, of viewpoint about your relationship with the world, all kinds of things that we could say as it relates to personal evangelism, as it relates to local outreach. But since it's reach, let me just say a couple things about what this means for us as a church with global missions. That because this should be kind of our posture towards the world, we as a church want to make sure that one of our priorities and perhaps even one of our distinctives as a church is to pursue reaching unreached people groups. That we want to do so with a wise urgency. That because Jesus sends us on mission, because the Great Commission is not finished yet, that we look at unreached people groups and we say as a congregation, we lament the reality that there are groups of people who even if they wanted to hear about Jesus, they have no access to the gospel at all. And we say as a church, that is not okay with us. Now that's why one of our core values for global outreach is to kind of emphasize the importance of unreached people groups. That's what has shaped kind of who we partner with, who we give financially, what we, you know, who we pray for. It's not to say we don't care about other people throughout the world or orphanages or clean water in Africa. But what we are saying is that the unreached people groups is what our target is in this mission uh, as it relates to global outreach. And it's because Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you need to go to the ends of the earth, and even in the hardest and most strategic areas of the world. And you think about who we partner with and who we support and the countries and the areas of the world, that kind of fits the most strategic parts of the world. And so for us as a church, we want to have this wise but urgent posture towards reaching the world with the gospel. Well, not only that, and I could say a lot more about that, but the second thing I'll point out here that I think we can gather from Jesus' prayer is the emphasis on unity and the role that unity plays as it relates to reaching the world. This is what surprised me and kind of stunned me as I was looking at um, this passage. Let me just unpack this and point out um, where I see this. When you get to verses 20 through 26, Jesus, as I stated earlier, does turn the corner and he starts to pray for followers that would believe because of the disciples' ministry. But one of the first things that he prays about is, is for our unity. All right, it's the first thing. He spends a lot of verses not only praying for unity, not only praying for us to be one, but in his prayer, he kind of explains what this unity should actually look like. It's really helpful. Let me point out three aspects about this unity that we can gather from Jesus' prayer. I think we see the nature of the unity. We see the centrality of this unity. And we also see the purpose of this unity. First, let's look at the nature of this unity. If you look at verse 21, Jesus is praying that they, his followers, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So he's praying for us to be one just as, or in a similar way, as the Father and the Son. And you can throw in the Holy Spirit there, 
are in each other and, ex- and experience the unity within the Godhead. He says something similar in verse 22, verse B, and verse 23a, that the nature of this unity and what Jesus is praying for, for the church and for believers today, is to be modeled and actually enabled by the Trinity. So the way that we express our unity with one another is to imitate the way that the Godhead expresses the unity among one another. So many ramifications for us today. Let me point out a couple. First, if you notice the Trinity's purpose together, they are all unified about their goal and their purpose, that they want their glory to reach the ends of the earth, right? The Habakkuk 2.14 passage, for the, the, the glory of the Lord will stretch across the earth as the, as the waters stretch across the sea. That's what the Godhead, that's what they're all after, and they're all on the same page with that. You don't have the Holy Spirit who's going rogue, who's doing his own thing over here, another purpose, another mission. No, no, they all have the same mission, and that impacts how we think about our mission. But they not only have the same minds, they're not only unified around the same mission, but notice the diversity within the Trinity that also should impact our understanding as far as unity within the local church. If you think about the Trinity here, yes, they're aligned, yes, they're unified, but the Father is different than the Son, and the Son is actually different than the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is praying for here in this prayer, as he's saying, I want them to be one, just as you and I are one, he's not praying that unity is uniformity. He's not saying for us to be one in a sense that we all look the same, that we all do the same activities, or that we all have the same spiritual gifts. Jesus is not praying for a bunch of Christian clones to fill the earth in order to live out the Christian mission. In fact, the insistence on trying to get other people to look and act just like us might actually be one of the most disunifying forces in the church today. See, one thing that the gospel does when it saves somebody is that it values the individuality of that individual, of that person, even while it builds unity within the church. Okay, sometimes, you know, we want to avoid individualism, right? Finding your purpose and, and kind of your mission outside of community. Like that's, that's definitely anti-gospel. But I think we need to avoid throwing the baby out with the bathwater because sometimes we say, yes, individualism is bad. Therefore, we're going to gather a group of people together, and we want everybody to look the same and to do the same kinds of of things. And yet what the gospel does is it comes and it saves an individual, and the Spirit gifts each individual uniquely and gives each of us a unique assignment and a unique way of living that out within a group of people. And so actually our diversity helps create unity. Let me, let me show you what Paul has to say about this. He makes this more of a direct connection in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. You jump down to verse 12. He says, for just as the body is one, 
and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. See, notice what Paul is saying here about the local church is that there are a variety of gifts within a local church, a variety of service, a variety of activities, and it is when these individual members, these individual parts who are diverse and who are different, when they come together around a same mission, what Jesus would say the Great Commission, there is unity. So you think about a human body, right? physical body, There's, there are all kinds of different parts with different functions. There's a diverse amount of body parts. The eye does not do the same thing as the hand. The hand does not do the same thing as the ear, and so on and so forth. But yet, when each of those body parts comes together around the same mission to help the body flourish, there is unity. And the same is true within the church. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at here, is that each member of a local church has a different role and a different service, a different activity, as Paul would say, even as it relates to global missions and the Great Commission. Some of us have been called and assigned by the Lord to go and to reach people in different cross-cultural environment. Others of us are called, maybe the majority of us in this room, to stay and to support, to give financially, to pray, and to encourage others. But when we, as these different parts, come together around the same mission of the Great Commission, unity is actually created. I think it's, it's in valuing that diversity of our gifts and our assignments that makes this type of unity effective. Okay, and I'll get to more of that kind of towards the end here. So Jesus talks about kind of the nature of this unity. So much we could say even more about the Trinity, how that impacts us. But I want to move on because Jesus also talks about the centrality of this unity. In other words, Jesus also mentions in his prayer what the unity of the church should be rooted in. He says that our unity should actually be rooted in our union within the Godhead. And Jesus prays in verse 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So he's grounding this oneness or this unity that we have horizontally within the vertical reality of our union with Christ, even within the Godhead. And so what this means is that our unity as a church is not created because we agree on every single issue. Our unity is not created because we all look the same way. Our unity is not created because we're all in the same life stage. But our unity is created because we believe the same things about Jesus Christ. That each of us have experienced this chapter 17, verse 3 experience of eternal life that we know God the Father and Jesus whom the Father has sent. And we build unity based around Jesus, not based on our differences. And this is what we see in, in other New Testament passages that talk about unity and diversity. When you look at 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 14, the question that Paul is trying to answer in those passages is how in the world can you have a group of believers who are so different, how can you actually allow them to be unified? And the answer that Paul gives in both of those passages, and something that Jesus would agree with, is that that group of believers keeps the main one, the main thing. 
that they build their unity around Jesus Christ, that it's a group of people who say, yes, we have different gifts, yes, we have different services and a variety of different activities, yes, we may look differently, yes, we may have different political positions and, and, and other issues that we may not see eye to eye on, but unity is created when we build it around Jesus because he is what we have in common with and he is what actually roots our identity within one another, within the family of God. We start with Jesus and we ground our unity in him and then we look to what the Bible actually has to say. That we say, okay, the Bible, whatever the Bible is clear on, whatever the Bible is essential on, like we hold it and we obey it. It's a non-negotiable. When the Bible is maybe not as clear about another issue, maybe a secondary issue, maybe something related to preferences or even convictions, and if someone within that local body disagrees with your position, our posture is not to doubt their salvation, but our posture is to love them, to respect them, and even to have a posture of, help me learn more about your position. Teach me more about how you view this, because look, I love Jesus, you love Jesus. We may not see eye to eye on this particular secondary issue, but let me learn from you in humility because I care more about you as a person than about this particular issue. And I think that's the way that we live out even James 1.19, where James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Or maybe in 21st century, be quick to listen, slow to tweet, and slow to post on Facebook, right? We, we want to protect that unity and understand who we are in Jesus, who we are within that vertical reality that impacts how we interact horizontally. Now, Jesus even talks about not only the centrality of it, not only the nature of it, but also the purpose of this unity. And this is what kind of blew me away. This is what kind of stunned me and surprised me the most. Look at verse 21 here. Where Jesus, again, he's praying that we'd be one, that we'd be unified. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, here's the purpose clause, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't that shocking? Like for Jesus here, he wants us to have this attractive, compelling otherworldly, Christ-centered unity so that the world may actually believe in Jesus. He says this again in verse 23. And this blew me away because, remember, this is Jesus hours away from dying. This is Jesus praying for the mission of his followers. And this is Jesus saying that one of the most effective ways to accomplish this mission is to be unified. He's saying the way that you reach the world is by how you treat one another actually inside the church. He said something similar in uh, John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, which is actually the same conversation, right? This is probably a couple hours before John 17. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, there is an outward effect upon the world based on our interaction with one another and the unity that we experience together. I mean, out of all the things 
that Jesus could have prayed for so that the world will know that the Father sent Jesus prays for unity. Doesn't pray for the next Billy Graham. Doesn't pray that Christianity is cool and hip or that we reach and, and meet physical needs. But he prays for unity. And what struck me is that he modeled this. I, I, thought, I thought about this for a little bit, just the people that surrounded Jesus in his earthly ministry. Have you ever thought about the group of people that he had with him? I, I wrote down this, he, he had a tax collector, a physician, fisherman, a woman who was a prostitute and at one time was possessed with several demons. Some were poor, some were wealthy, some were energetic, some were passive, some were explosive like Peter, others, James, maybe more logical. It's kind of a mess of a group of people, isn't it? Like you wonder how they remained unified together, but doesn't it remind you of a certain group of people? Doesn't that remind you of the church? That the church is a group of of messy people, at times sinful people, and yet our unity is an effective and powerful witness to the world when we unify ourselves in Jesus Christ and the mission that he has given us. Thomas Manton has said pretty famously that divisions in the church actually breed atheism in the world. That when the world looks at a church that just can't get along, that's not unified, where there's division, where there's gossip, where we're not believing the best about one another, the world says, the gospel can't possibly work. The gospel has no power here if you guys can't even get along. So you can take the opposite of this quote, still be true, that Unity in the church actually builds belief in the world. That when the world looks at a church, a group of people who are diverse and different, and says, wow, you guys are so unified, you care for one another, you love one another, tell me more about Jesus. Tell me more about about this gospel truth that has changed you, that has anchored you, and that echoes throughout the world. The unity the church displays to the world affects the spread of the gospel to the world. And this is somewhat of a, of a warning for us, church, even this morning. One of the things that I've been so thankful for over the last couple of years is the way that the Lord has given us a sense of unity, even as, as a young church. And I've been so thankful for so many of you where you put this as a priority to make sure that you're protecting the peace and purity and the unity of our church. Like it's a joy to lead a church like that. But I, I think one of the ways, maybe, maybe the first way that the enemy would want to attack us is in the unity of our church. That yeah, he'll probably always go after leaders, but one of the most effective ways is to kind of stir up division within our church. And even as you think about what a, an important season our church is in as we enter into a building, we use that building as a tool to reach more people for the gospel of Jesus Christ, if I if I was the enemy, man, I would sow seeds of discord in College Park Fishers left and right. And so I just want to encourage you on one hand, but also kind of a warning on the other, that the next time that you are tempted to gossip or to create division or to maybe not think the best in another person at this church, just to, just to slow down a little bit and understand that that action is not only an individual and personal sin, but it, is also, it also has a negative impact on our witness to the world around us. That if the unity is a tool that God uses to bring people to Jesus, 
participating in division will actually go against that. And so Jesus is, is praying that, that there would be a group of his followers who have a compelling, attractive, Christ-centered unity so that the world would be drawn in to Jesus. And in this prayer, Jesus is praying in such a way to instill kind of a gospel boldness within his followers, a, a missional clarity, and a sense of urgency because the gospel works and because we're not going to live in fear as we have the gospel go forth to the ends of the earth. And so church, I'm excited about what the Lord's doing in our midst. I'm excited about what he's doing around the world through our global outreach. I am pumped out of my mind about, about the, the Christmas offering and just what God could do within five years, literally ending the unreached, unengaged people groups in Laos. It's an unbelievable and, and huge privilege for us to participate in. And just want to encourage you to, to make sure that you're giving and praying about giving towards that project. So as we close, um, what now, right? We always get to the end of reach and we think about, man, what are, what are some practical takeaways that we can have as it relates um, to what we've heard? We've heard some di- from different missionaries. We've you know, heard about the Christmas offering. We've seen Jesus's prayer. Here are three quick takeaways as we think about global missions as a church. The first is just to be reminded that participating in global missions is every Christian's joyful responsibility, right? We are all sent into the world on mission. Some of us are called to go cross-culturally. Others of us are, are called just to send to make sure we're giving and praying and even encouraging those missionaries who are going cross-cultural. But at the same time, those of us who are called to stay, to still be reminded that we are to participate in making disciples here locally and to not think, okay, we've got a group of, of missionaries who are over there and they're doing the work. And that somehow releases us from participating even in personal evangelism here in Indianapolis. That those who help send should be every bit as committed as those who go. And so this is all of our responsibility. And then secondly, to get the nations on your heart. Right? This is a big part of why we do REACH. We love emphasizing REACH two weeks out of the year, but it's not that we get to the end of it and it, we check that box and we kind of move on to other things and we forget about global outreach and what God is doing around the world. No, we want this to be on the forefront of our minds and our hearts all throughout the year. It's partly why we do some missionary updates throughout the year. Some missionaries come back and we, we, we hear their presentations and we pray for them. But the idea that God has a passion for the nations to hear and become worshipers of his should actually be a passion that's on our heart as well. So a couple of practical ways that you can do this. One of the best things that you can do to keep the nations on your heart is to consistently pray for the nations. And there's a really exciting opportunity that we have as a church to partner with the Coles in Laos, and that is to actually adopt an unreached or unengaged people group, and to consistently pray for them. That he's encouraged us to, to adopt, maybe as a small group, to, to adopt an unreached people group and to get monthly updates about how those local missionaries are serving uh, that, that people group and to make sure that we're praying for them consistently. And so if you want more information about that, you can talk to Tim or ask somebody on staff and we can direct you to the right, the right way. The second way that you can get the nations on your heart is to consider going on a vision trip. This is really an amazing opportunity that we have as a church to go uh, to the Middle East next spring, uh, to Jordan and Dubai. 
and, and visit and meet and pray with some of our missionaries over there. This is a great opportunity to see what God is doing in the Middle East, a different part of the world, and to have your compassion for the nations actually grow. And so there's going to be a call-out meeting over the next couple of weeks for more information about that trip, but just to consider going on that as well. And then the third way you can get the nations on your heart is to, is to read biographies of great missionaries. We talked about this last week, but to be reminded of what God has done in the past to inform you of what God can do in the present and the future. That gets your heart excited about God and his power. We've got some resources even in the back if you're curious. So those are a couple ways to get the nations on your heart, but I'll close with this, and that is just a, a consistent challenge to be open to God sending you that no matter how old you are, no matter what stage of life that you're in, that we consistently need to be praying, God, are you sending me to go? God, are you calling me to go cross-culturally? And just to hold your life open-handedly, to kind of put your yes on the table and have God take your yes and put it somewhere on the map. And that might be here, and praise the Lord for that, but that might be elsewhere. And maybe he is calling you to go, and you haven't really asked God that question yet. And so to perhaps ask the dangerous question, God, are you calling me to go? And if so, where? We want to be a church that has that type of sending mindset all throughout our existence. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for this wonderful and just powerful, intimate prayer of Jesus that gives us a, an inside look into his priorities. God, we want to be a church that, that imitates those priorities, that takes on those priorities because they're so important. God, we thank you for this unbelievable assignment, this, this mission to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that, that there are souls that can be saved because the gospel is real and powerful, and you've asked the church to take the gospel forward. So Lord, would you help us to, to do that better, to do it more effectively? God, to give more generously, to raise up more people to send, to pray for our current missionaries more consistently. God, we want to complete the Great Commission. So would you give us grace and boldness and wisdom to know how to do that? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.